I'm Kim Schmidt, Managing Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to Farm Equipment's Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps Podcast. In this episode brought to you by Iron Solutions, host Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC talks with Terry Levinka of Levinka Equipment, an eight-store Case IH and Kubota dealer in Texas. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to subscribe via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you're alerted when each upcoming episode is released. Before we turn things over to Casey, a quick word from Iron Solutions, who's making this podcast a reality. Iron Solutions provides dealers with an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. Their Iron Search and Iron Guides are all about managing your dealership more efficiently and profitably. While Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. Casey and Terry get the conversation going discussing the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey and how business is doing today and what sort of impact the storm and recovering from it had on the farming community in the region. Terry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Good deal, man. So give me a little brief background on Terry Levinka and Levinka equipment. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I'm a... Third generation equipment dealer, uh, born in East Bernard, Texas, which is uh, about an hour's drive from the Gulf Coast. You know, low elevation, flat Lake Charles clay, uh, so it's heavy clay soils. You know, it's it's just what you expect out of a farming community, at least growing up. And and over time, it's become much much more urbanized. We've got the uh, fourth largest city in the country, right in the middle of our territory now, Houston, Texas. So we've seen it evolve a great deal, but at the same time, there's still uh, a lot of agriculture. Uh, it's become more diverse from uh, when my grandfather bought the business in 1939. Uh, it was uh, it was primarily cotton with maybe some corn for, for livestock and what have you, and, and of course thousands of farmers in the, in the same territory that we're dealing with just a, a few hundred today. Um, but, uh, you know, we shifted to more grain in the 70s and then shipped back and forth from cotton to grain. And there's still a lot of cotton in this territory. It's a key driver. And the rice has been a, a staple crop for, uh, for most of our territory uh, for, the, for the entire, you know, duration. And the urban development has impacted the rice more than any other crop because of land usage competition, because it's just where most of the rice was farmed is on, on and around the Houston area, and the struggle for for water, uh, which has been a you know ongoing uh, issue for the last couple of decades, has certainly impacted the ability to to farm rice in this area. Our water costs are extremely high compared to some other rice producing states. So we we have to do things uh, more efficiently and and better, but at the same time we also we also sacrifice some marginal ground in in, in that process. Uh, we have turf grass with all the urban development you can imagine, some nursery business, some catfish uh, farming, uh, some shrimp farming. But our our core base of customers are still large row crop farmers, and those farmers are mostly full time. So the the part time farmers kind of evolved. Uh, out of the industry really back 20 years ago. Now these guys are 2,000 to 20,000 acres, uh, you know, and probably very common for five to 10,000 acre operations in the territory now. Uh, so I, was, I was born in East Bernard. That's uh, that's our headquarters. We have eight eight locations spread in the Gulf Coast area. East Bernard, uh, I was born in East Bernard. There is not a hospital any longer in East Bernard. So I was one of the, one of the last uh, uh, of a generation to be born in 
in this small town, but we're fortunate we have the greatest healthcare in the world, just 45 minute drive from here. That's great. So you have eight locations. So geographically kind of give us an idea of what, of what your eight locations cover. Uh, it, well, it's, it's really, uh, uh, you know, interesting how, how unique the customer base is at the different locations. Some of them, which are even uh, fairly close, obviously somewhat due to, to the, the surrounding, uh, geography and, and, and demographics, but uh, you know we start on the east side of our territory, east of Houston. That's uh, that's rice and cattle and uh, and and a lot of hay. So we we uh, we kind of service those type of customers. Uh, it's spread out. It, it's not it, it's low density farming, I guess I would say. So you know compared to what you would see in other parts of the country, where you see rows and rows of the crops planted. You may drive several miles and see another field planted and rice here, and then you see cattle or, or swampland in some of those areas. Uh, uh, then we move across to the west, uh, and we have uh, a couple of uh, – our closest store to Houston is a Kubota dealership as well. I should say that seven out of my eight locations are Case IH locations, so, you know, Case IH is my – is my uh, is my main line, uh, no question about that. But uh, Kubota's is important in the locations where I have that, and has you know enabled me to stay competitive in those markets and to keep our main line into those markets uh, as well. So uh, you know, uh, lifestyle farming, uh, municipal, um, and some row crop farming, and then we move further south. The further we go south. The larger the farmers become, uh, the less urbanized it is, and and so we go down the coast uh, to El Campo and to Victoria, and and then finally to Taft, which is in the Corpus Christi market, and that's the largest farmers that we have down in that area. With your product mix and, and the customers that you have, you really kind of you're you have that line in your territory where you have you know the, the true rural America, and and then not too far away you have a, a very very much urban sprawl taking place. So talk to me about what your product mix looks like and, and how, how the dynamics are. So as a dealership, how do you handle those dynamics between the, the large ag side of your business and the, and the small ag side of your business? Well, that, you know, that, that's a, that's a difficult challenge uh, without a doubt, because to be competitive in those low horsepower tractor markets, uh, you have to really control your overhead and, uh, it's difficult to give the, the large customers the kind of service they need on their big equipment. If you're not running the, the biggest and best fleet of, of service trucks and, and delivery trucks and, and, and training and uh, for your technicians. So that is probably one of the main reasons why we concentrate on different, a different core customer out of the different organizations because we, we equip those locations differently. You know, for instance, you know, our, our East Bernard location will, will service uh, construction dealers in the Houston market. And we have, you know, full blown service trucks that run in and out into the Houston market on, on a pretty much daily basis. And, and our Rosenberg store won't, if they, if they have a customer like that, we'll service them out of this location. You know, likewise, if we have a lawn and garden customer out of this location, we might send them to that other location for service work. We equalize the freight uh, for our customers so that if we need to service something in one of our locations, we're going to charge that. Uh, if we're overbooked in that location or we think we can do it better in another location, we will, we'll just charge the customer the freight to his closest location. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Hurricane Harvey came through there. It probably affected every store you had, did it not? 
you know, we, we're accustomed to, you know, even hurricanes coming through the Gulf Coast area, and, and we've been challenged by by those storms in the past and have had disruption, serious disruption at, at one location or another for uh, for a period of time. But uh, this was different, no question about it. It was it was a monster storm, and uh, we never had we never had an experience that shut down our entire operation for for a period of time. And when uh, the predictions came out for Harvey, uh, the the weather forecasters unfortunately pegged it just right. They they were predicting. I never saw such a thing, but you know, predicting three feet of rain and that this storm was going to stay around for a week. So. You know, I can only imagine what uh, the flood like was like that Noah experienced for, for when it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Because I tell you, when it rains for seven days and seven nights, <laughs> you got problems. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It's it it really do. And and so we prepared for that, but at the same time, it was something that that nobody ever experienced. So we didn't, you know, pre- prepare enough. I mean, so it was a it was a lifetime event. We started our storm preparation a couple of days before the storm hit, which was in the southern part of our territory. Uh, and we had some wind damage. Uh, it came in a little community called Rockport, uh, just close to our Taft location. We had some significant wind damage at that store location. And then the storm came in and just stopped. And it just stopped. And it just, I mean, just stalled. And it moved at a half a mile per hour for and then may speed up to a mile per hour. It went over our Victoria location, had some more wind damage there, and, and thinking, sure, this thing is going to find its way, you know, back either in, further inland or offshore. And it just literally, I think it had a vendetta uh, against me personally. It seemed like it just touched every place I had. Or maybe my father. My father, actually, his home was was hit one afternoon by, uh, by a uh, tornado. You have these small tornadoes that come in with, there are hundreds of these small tornadoes that come in with these kind of hurricanes. And, and he called me one afternoon and said, hey, you never guess what happened. I just had a tornado hit my house. And and so we went over there. It wasn't serious. It just banged up the roof a little bit and knocked some fence over and that sort of thing. And the next morning, he calls me at 8 o'clock in the morning. He said, you never guess what happened. During the night, he had a second tornado hit his house, so <laughs> it caused a little bit more damage. But that's the – I mean, it's just – how do you – how do you imagine you got to have within a 12 hour period, you can have two separate tornadoes hit your, uh, your place, but that's what happened. And, and, uh, and then the rain came after that and the storm eventually, uh, moved back offshore into the Gulf. Uh, it already rained, you know, 40 inches on the, on the, the West side of Houston by that time. And we're thinking, okay, it's going out in the Gulf. It's going to go bye-bye. And then thing comes right back inland and goes, uh, to our, uh, the east side of Houston and hangs over our known location, and they got almost 60 inches of rain. Then, uh, as a total rainfall event, and the the whole town—that's our oldest location. Um, I, the building was built in the 50s, I guess, and it uh, has never flooded. And the entire town flooded. We had water in our facility there for four days. Wow. So, in the midst of all that, we're we're trying to clean up on our southern part of our territory while it's still raining on the the east side and flooding on the the east side. Um, our we lost electricity in a couple locations for for extended period of time. We we have uh, VoIP phone systems as probably most dealers do, and those things really really work well. But when you don't have internet connection and you don't have electricity, that's a real problem. 
And we plan for that contingency when our, we put our VoIP system in. We put a backup in, in another location so we could, we could lose one of our headquarter locations and still operate our phone systems, but both our locations went down. All right. So we, uh, you know, we effectively had no communications and no computers for uh, 10 days or two weeks and really didn't have any functional uh, communications for about a month because it was so unreliable. We had we had to store systems that could receive calls and and some that could place calls but not both ways and you know cell phones somebody would call and we'd have to call back on a cell phone or transfer them to uh via cell phone to another store location. It was uh it was very, very disruptive. But but you know that that kind of pales in comparison to what so many of our employees and, and our neighbors faced. I mean the the flooding to the homes was was massive. We we had about 15 employees that had their homes flooded. Uh, we had about 40 that had serious damage to their property, uh, and so they were dealing with their own troubles. So even if they if they uh, uh, could get to work, which many could not because the roads were flooded, uh, they had they had plenty of stuff to to worry about at home. I've kind of told some people before. I never I never imagined you could lose so much money so quickly uh, in a business, and if you've got expenses going on because most all of our expenses kept generating with zero income it's not it's not a fun situation to deal with yeah because i remember watching the news and seeing the, the pictures of the houses that had water up to the you could just see the vent of the on the roof sticking above the water line or the water is all the way up to the roof line or, or and those things so i mean it was just a that was a, it was a catastrophic storm and like you said it's a lifetime event and Hopefully that we don't see another one of those in our so lifetime. There's nobody, uh, there's nobody on the Gulf Coast that doesn't know somebody intimately that didn't have a home flooded. I mean, they just, they just amazing. It was so widespread and affected so many communities and so many people. And you know, people, you know, think, "Oh, I missed it," and then here it comes, and and they actually didn't miss it because, uh, you know, a levee burst or something, and and you know, the little town of Wharton down the road, they thought they were going to get by you know, easy, and then a levee burst, and within a couple hours, most of the town flooded, just crazy things like that, livestock, uh, you know, some, uh, thank God for these, the cowboys and the, and the National Guard trying to trying to get the cattle from, from drowning, they saved, and it really did a, a wonderful job, and, and saved most, most livestock, it was a little, few, a few that did perish for sure, uh, but it could have been a whole lot worse, uh, you saw pictures of the of the cattle being fed out of National Guard helicopters, you don't see that every day. Yep, no, that's it was a it was a crazy event. So we're about I don't know what's been almost uh, what six months now since that that's taken place. So talk to me a little bit about where you're, where you're at now and and how that's affected your overall um, your overall business up to this point, and then what is it? How's it affecting what you see in in the uh, farming community? Sure, and well, you know, I can tell you that that. We have, oh, we were not on a record-setting year by any stretch before the storm hit, but it looked like an improvement from what we saw in the last couple of years. And we had a lot of most of the grain was harvested, uh, about eighty percent of the rice was harvested. But you know, twenty percent is where your profit is. So, and but a lot of the cotton was still in the field. And a lot of the cotton that was harvested was still sitting in modules waiting to be ginned. Uh, so it didn't matter whether very little of the cotton was ginned. So it was all suspect who, to some type of damage of the modules uh, down south close to where the storm blew in. A lot of those just blew away. Some of the round ones 
were blown into to, to ditches and a lot of damage. Some of that's insured, some of that's not. And then we go further north and you, the cotton, a good portion of it was still unharvested and it degraded the quality and the, and the, the volume significantly. Quite frankly, not as significantly as we thought it would have when you experience 35 to 55 inches of rainfall on cotton. You would have just thought it had been completely obliterated, and it was not. But we lost a third to 50% of the crop in, in the form of yield or quality. Uh, you know, kind of across the board, there were certainly people that were uh, impacted disproportionately. There were a lot of the cotton that was completely submerged, which was not harvestable at all. But but then the cotton that was sitting in modules before the storm got wet, and and it became very very difficult to uh, process at the gins. And in fact, there is still a gin that's ginning cotton here today, and I mean, that's never happened that I know of in history. Uh, typically, we would wrap up harvesting cotton uh, late September, early October. And by first November, middle of November, the gins will be finished processing. The cotton is run through a ginning process that removes the seed, just bales the lint up, which are sold to two separate industries, basically. The seed was damaged because of that rain, so it degraded the value of that seed. It costs a lot more money to, to, to process that cotton because of the diminished value of the seed. And what's really impacted us late into the year, and even still today, is so much of this cotton was insured, but it was in, but not by federal crop insurance because it had already been harvested. So it's sitting, it was sitting on a gin yard, and they're trying to figure out how to to properly pay a loss. They have to go back and forensically decide what you actually had in that module and how much you had in that module. Uh, as, as an example, I. I own a small farm down the road. They have a t- tenant a farmer. He had a beautiful cotton crop, had about 80, 80 acres on that particular farm, and he brought me his rent check in December, and it was $400 uh, was my share on an 80-acre farm. And he said, well, you got more coming. you got more. got a lot more coming, but I don't know when it's going to get here. So uh, he would have received four times that much, but that's 1600 bucks. That didn't go very far and certainly doesn't, doesn't uh, bode uh, well for his uh, passion to buy uh, new, even used farm equipment. So they've been sitting on their hands to, to make uh, to make a long story short. We wound up uh, thinking that this was going to be a year because of the cotton that some of our farmers were going to you know, kind of crawl out of a hole they've been in for the last few years. And it's just another sustaining year is what it amounted to. I've heard that from several other dealers, not necessarily on the cotton side of the business, but other dealers I've talked to, whether it be in you know Oklahoma or West Texas in, in the in the wheat belt, where they had they had some pretty strong signs of of a fairly decent wheat crop, and they thought that maybe this was going to be a year that they could they could drag some guys out uh, with cotton prices the way they were, but with the intense drought that they're having. A lot of guys now are worried about what what's it going to look like when it comes time to start plants. We'll get back to Casey and Terry in a moment, but first a quick word from the company who made this podcast possible. Iron Solutions has deep roots in the ag industry with products for producers, dealers, manufacturers, ag retailers, and service providers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com to see solutions that streamline your operations, improve productivity, reduce costs, and speed your growth. 
Casey and Terry started things off reviewing the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey and how the storm and recovery impacted the dealership's business and also the impact the store had on their customers, particularly cotton growers. Now here's Casey with a quick message about moving iron. Hello, I'm Casey Seymour, and I want to thank Farm Equipment Magazine for partnering with me to bring you the Farm Equipment Podcast Series, Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmap. The podcasts are taken from my weekly podcast, Moving Iron Podcast. Moving Iron Podcast is a podcast designed for ag equipment dealers by ag equipment dealers. The weekly podcast focuses on current events and trends across the ag equipment marketplace in North America. Along with dealers, I interview the biggest names in the ag industry. Chip Nellinger of Blue Reef Aga Marketing is a regular guest talking about commodity markets and risk management. You can also hear guests like Greg Machinery Pete Peterson and Tyne Morgan of the U.S. Farm Report. If you are in the ag equipment business or have an interest in the ag equipment business, this is a must listen for you. You can find the podcast at movingironllc.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. Also at movingironllc.com, you can find information on the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from the Moving Iron blog. Throughout the year, there will be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. You can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, or you can find me on LinkedIn. And if you would like, you can send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out. Thanks, Casey. Let's get back to the program now and listen in as Casey and Terry talk about how the planting season is looking for Texas following some extreme cold in the region. They also look at what the biggest hurdles they're anticipating for the business in the next six months are. In your area, with the effects of the hurricane that's come through, and then you got another punch here in the face with some pretty extreme colds for your part of the world. How does your planting season look like coming up here? Because I'm sure you're not that far away from really starting to plant some crop. No, I mean, it's plant, planting season just around the corner here. Uh, the cold weather, you know, it's unusual for us to, to have a hard freeze here. Um, and uh, we've had several this year. That's a good thing. If we can get a, a you know a hard freeze, that kind of helps the texture of the soil and stuff. Some things the guys in the Midwest get to see that we never uh, or hardly get to see. We, we'll get a, a cold snap like we had this year every every decade or so. But, you know, nobody's going to feel sorry for us uh, or most of your – your listeners, and I don't feel sorry for us when I say it got to 19 degrees, right? I mean, it's, but 19 degrees when it causes a lot of pipes to break in in South Texas. I can tell you that. If you, you, we're accustomed to the 28 degree, you know, and then warms back up. It's very seldom do we get freezing weather for 24 hours here, and that's uh, that does cause some some disruptions to to our infrastructure. But but it wasn't that bad, and and you know, hopefully we get maybe some insect kill out of it. And, and so there's more of that good that typically comes out of that than bad. And from equipment standpoint, it, we use a lot of hay up when it gets cold. Uh, we we lost a lot of hay in the flood this this past summer, and uh, now we have this cold weather. So we think the, the demand uh, for hay should be strong next year, and they'll want to process and build more hay uh, coming into the spring and the summer. That does look positive uh, going into the year, but we've got to make a crop this year. We've got to make a big crop this year, along with some, some fairly decent cotton pricing, uh, and maybe we can see what we were hoping to see last fall. But I can tell you that I see these industry numbers, and, and Deere and Case IH, are saying they're predicting you know zero to ten percent up in the market or whatever, and we've got this demand-driven 
uh, industry now, and we things are going to get better. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that's the case in some places, but I sure haven't seen that in 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 South Texas. I I'm looking at industry numbers that are uh, the largest drop we've had in the history uh, in in 2017. You know. Row crop tractors uh, in our in our industry in our market, and this is for deer and everybody put together. So I'm not talking one particular brand. We're down over 40 percent. Um, the sprayer business in our market last year was down 75 percent. I just haven't seen these kind of numbers really since uh, since the mid 80s when I started in the business. I see those same numbers, and I'm I, I'm with you. I mean, I see that it's going to be. They keep talking about up, you know, these these big upward trends, and and I've read it in a number of magazines and a number of internet stuff that I've that I've looked through, and I don't see there's going to be much difference than what what we saw last year. I, mean, I think we're going to be flat if at best. Um, obviously, you're in a different. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm definitely interested in your perspective too because I I talk uh, to dealers around the country, and and some of them are telling me they're seeing exactly the same thing I am. Seeing here in my own market, and so you know, if there's a bunch of people seeing, you know, forty to to seventy percent declines in in industry numbers, to get to positive numbers, you got to have some some big markets getting really really big increases. Yeah. Well, I and mean, I think I don't think I'm I'm not seeing that here, like that that level of 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 disparity, like you're like you're talking about. What I'm seeing is I think we're going to be lucky to be. I mean, every dealer I've talked to, they're they're banking on you know one to two or three, maybe five percent over last year, which to me is flat. You, you haven't really done much to to increase your marketplace. I think my opinion, I think where the inventory or the equipment sales are going to be hot and heavy, it's going to be in used equipment, and that's just because balance sheets are are such are in such bad are bad spots right now with the way things have been over the last five years. You know, it's just a, in a steady decline in the marketplace. Every year, I feel like 18, when you look at the markets across across the board, and I was talking, you know, Chip Nellinger on here from time to time, talks about the markets and those kind of things, and he feels like we're, you know, a little bit of a of, of a bottom, you know, maybe, and if there isn't going to be a dip, it's not going to be a huge dip, and then we're going to start hopefully heading our way back out of this, but I just I just feel like the used equipment marketplace is going to be the continually driving that, that business up just because of, one, there's the lack of used a lack of late model, low hour stuff out there. And there's not a lot of people in line to come buy a, you know, a, a brand new machine. And I think that's what we're going to see uh, through 2018 and into 2019. You know, I think, I think the big, the big numbers, the big decreases we saw were somewhat of an anomaly uh, this year. And, and, and maybe you can attribute some of that to the hurricane, but I don't think the most of that is attributable to the hurricane. I think uh, we saw some drop off, some significant drop off on implement business, and uh, maybe some mid-range small tractor business because of the hurricane. But that was compensated, uh, offset somewhat by the fact that there were a lot of small tractors that were flooded and damaged. Uh, you know, the, the urban property owners out here in the country will have their little place in the bottoms, right? And so those are the first place that, that would flood and they had their tractors, they couldn't get them out. And so there was a lot of small tractors that were flooded in this area and they replaced some of those tractors. 
Uh, otherwise, and we saw that market, the, the small market has been strong in Texas and continues to be strong. It was it was relatively flat in the 40 to 60 horsepower range last year, but that's a strong market and it's been strong the last several years. We haven't seen the, the fluctuations, but that's driven by non-agricultural producers. Those are, those are those are hobby farmers. Good thing is they, they keep coming and a lot of those folks just keep coming and coming so that market should stay strong for for quite a while. You've got, you know, obviously Kubota plays uh, hard in that market and and uh, Deer and, and Mahindra in the state of Texas has become a become a major competitor in the in the low horsepower business. And that's good. That keeps floor traffic and keeps your salesman when things are slow and, you know, keeps your big ag salesman kind of in practice of being able to sell something so that when the guy wants to buy a big tractor, he hadn't forgotten how to do it. Uh, and uh, that's a little bit of a problem for some of my guys that don't have the opportunity to sell those small tractors. They kind of, they kind of literally a little bit get out of practice and, and uh, uh, or forget forget that somebody might actually buy something new and big and, and uh, because they're obviously still people out there in the market. And these customers, these farmers down here, they're tough, they're resilient, and, you know, by and large, these guys are going to be, they're going to make it. Um, We're going to have natural attrition. We lose somebody every year, and farmers uh, get bigger, you know, no different than dealership complexes. And But uh, by and large, they're going to make it. Uh, They've weathered these type of of issues before. And And it's kind of interesting because we have oftentimes run a little bit uh, uh, counter-cyclical to what, what goes on in the Midwest. I, you know, I can remember when, uh, when, when I was in college, we had a fairly strong market locally and, and places in like Iowa and, and Minnesota and, and South Dakota that was really, really depressed. I was buying combines and we were bringing them down here and most of those were two-wheel drive machines. We'd have to equip them with four-wheel drives and turn them into rice combines, but but the market was strong enough at that time they could afford this to be able to do that. And then we saw five years ago, we saw the equipment turning around and going the other way, which is really the only time I've seen that in the in, in our industry because we were challenged with with the long, devastating drought in Texas. Um, and 2006 to 2011 was just, was just really, really tough down here. Uh, we... we Lost uh, irrigation supplies for four years on our major irrigation district and uh, and several of the other districts as well. Uh, so we were we're still trying to recover from those droughts, and then we get then we get a flood. It's kind of interesting uh, that, uh, but that's kind of normal in this part of the world. Weather has always been and always will be such a such a major driver in anything that has to do with agriculture. Um, right now. What what is your as you know? Like I said, I talked to the guys up in West Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas and all that stuff, and it seems like they're telling me that's just the, the worst drought they've had in a long time, and they're really not counting on having any kind of a wheat crop at all. How's how's the moisture in your area, and and is there any kind of drought issue down there that you're concerned about? I uh, no no we're we're in pretty good shape right now, so I, I would say we're just. By and large, I mean, there's some areas just west of San Antonio, not too far away from here, that are that are really dry. But we're the the largest agricultural uh, production, and most of it's dry land, with exception of the rice. Most most of the row crops here are dry land. They've got uh, adequate moisture, and and they'll be able to plant to moisture in the next starting in golly, in a couple of weeks, really, in the southern part of our territory. Uh, we're 
you know, expecting maybe a little bit drier than, than normal summer, but we're, we're starting off in a good place. So yeah. uh, I'm kind of excited about the potential for this crop because the field conditions are good, weather forecast, well, who knows, but right now it looks okay. Yeah. So looking out here over the next, you know, coming into, you know, first six months of the year, so you get through plant season and you're going to start rolling into some, some spring harvesting of, of, of different crops there. So what do you, what do you project as being one of your bigger hurdles you're going to have to overcome with your organization? Well, I mean, we're, we're still fighting, uh, used inventories. Uh, we're in better shape than we were, uh, in the last couple of years. We, we keep, uh, you know, choking down the, the new pipeline and thinking that, okay, this is what we got to do. We got to sell this many fewer tractors and this many fewer combines so we can make sure that we can move all our used equipment back in the marketplace. But we were not predicting our real tractor market to fall 41% mm -hmm. uh, either. So you want it. So if the, there's a corresponding uh, demand in late model used as there is to that new equipment. So we haven't been out, they'll outrun the, uh, uh, the drop in demand. As as much as we tried, we still haven't been able to outrun the, the drop in demand. We we lost pretty much an entire month of sales this year. We put some equipment in auction in December, thinking you know we need to try to kind of catch up for for that for for that loss of uh, of sales in the month, and that wasn't pretty. It was it was ugly. Um, yeah. I, we don't typically move equipment to auction because that is. Unfortunately, kind of the norm when you're in the southern United States, uh, you know, there's a, uh, a misnomer that, that everything down here is, is junk, and that's certainly, certainly not the case. There's some really nice equipment down in the southern United States, and there's some that's probably not, but uh, we had some nice equipment in there, and it still, uh, it still was ugly. And it all left the state of Texas, which would indicate to me, I'd uh, say it all, the high-dollar pieces, uh, the majority of the dollars sold left the state of Texas and went a long ways. I think some of it went to your territory, by the way. So we sold green and red equipment both in Colorado, uh, Minnesota, Canada, uh, which would indicate to me that we have an extremely weak market if we have a unit that's really spec'd for our usage here and you have a Canadian buyer or a Minnesota buyer that's willing to pay more money plus an $8,000 freight bill to get it. To his location, it was. But but I need to do that sometimes. I need to throw some stuff in a marketplace in in an auction so I know that I can validate what it's really worth, and I need to 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 jump out of it. And mm -hmm. but I had just validated that that's not the place I need to be selling equipment, which gives me even yeah. more drive to make sure that I don't trade for equipment that I cannot retail. Yep, auctions are it's a great barometer, but it's it's. Uh, I listened to a talk show the other day, and everybody wants the guy's point was everybody wants to have a drought as long as the drought doesn't affect their farm, you know. So it's uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's the same thing with auctions. Everybody likes to watch auctions and, and enjoys the the what's going on there until it's your equipment in the auction, and then usually it's you're getting your head ripped off or you're getting your teeth kicked in or something. And very rarely do you walk out of an auction with a with your money all together that you came that you showed up with so i'm watching the auction market as much as i can and, and to your point like you said you, you know the demand of people that were from all over the place buying stuff i back to my point with used equipment earlier that's where i think that's at i mean i think the demand for good quality equipment that doesn't have a lot of hours on it and it, it's kind of spec the way they want it to be spec 
it's going to sell. And, and like you said, someone buying something almost in Houston, which is, you can't really get much as far as until you get to Florida. I mean, you can't really get much more South than that from Canada and the guy buys there and ships it all the way up to Canada. That tells you that there's probably a, a shortage of, of whatever that particular unit was that they were trying to find. And, and they had to go all the way to Houston, Texas to, to find that piece of equipment. So I think the used equipment market is going to drive a lot of stuff. I'm watching the auctions and um, I'm seeing a, a really uh, an uptick in values. I'm not going to sit here and say that we're in a four bore, you know, incline of values by any means, but um, it's a lot better than it was even six months ago. So um, things are headed in the right direction and, and hopefully they, they stay that way because when auction values come up, so do retail values, and we all need to have some. It benefits us and the farmers much to have strong retail values. Yeah, no, I I, I kind of agree with what you what you say about the auctions. I do see uh, maybe some strengthening in the in the auctions, even even over the last three years. It seems like to me every year you sell the equipment that there hadn't been much equipment sold in in the last two three years. So you're still seeing 14 model tractors being sold at auction sales that were one year old with, you know, $500 uh, two years ago. Now they're, now they're three years old. Some of them still with $500, right? Cause they've been sitting, sitting on some dealer's lot and they're bringing about the same amount of money, but they're two years older and, uh, or maybe they've got thousand hours instead of 500 hours. So, you know, the, the late model stuff's bringing the same amount of money. It's just, it's just a year or two older than what we were seeing a couple of years ago. That's kind of my perception from the marketplace. But yeah, if you squeeze the, you squeeze the new pipeline down for long enough, it, it's got to impact uh, the used values. But there is still a, a lot of equipment that can enter the market. I think you have leasing companies that are holding some of that equipment and trying to come up with some rational way to 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 move it out. And you know, the big question is when is that stuff When's, it, when's that stuff finish and mm -hmm. get out of the system and no clear answer to that. Yeah. Every, all those leasing companies are trying to figure out the best way to get rid of the equipment without completely wrecking the, the, uh, the market. And that is a fine line that they're walking because there's a pile of equipment out there and there's a, there's this whole supply demand thing comes into play. How's that all going to play out? Who knows? And, and maybe they'll start opening the valve up here a little bit as, as values start to, you know, start to increase. My dad's in the oil field business and, and he watches a uh, rig count all the time because that's, he can predict when the, the, by looking at it, he can start kind of seeing when the price of oil is going to start moving. And, and when they bring more rigs online, the price of oil goes down. And when they take those rigs offline, they go back up, you know? So it's just, it's the same thing, you know, it's, it's the, the more supply that's out there, yeah, that will have effect on uh, an effect on demand. So, you, you know that in, that industry uh, is in better shape than it was for sure two years ago. You don't hear in the Houston paper every day now or every week of of, of a new bankruptcy. And mm -hmm. and in fact, there's some optimism. They're actually adding jobs back into the oil industry and and more exploration and stuff, which is good. I mean, they 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 use some of our equipment for for yeah. building. Uh, drill sites and and roads and uh, and when they make money, the old guys uh, buy tractors to put on their deer ranches and that sort of thing. So you know all those things have been challenged uh, and and there are some things to be optimistic about and certainly the cotton price is one. Uh, cotton price, uh, comparatively speaking, to grains looks 
looks good. looks looks like it could be at a level that uh, if you make a big crop, you can make some pretty good money. I best it's been in, in, in a while and good moisture. There's been years where we've been pulling equipment out of Canada, you know, so that's just part of it. It's, we, we, we get some things rolling our way here and, and uh, you know, great grace of God and some 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 hard work and we're gonna be all right. We can we can survive a, a you know a year with uh, declining sales like this and uh, industry declining sales and a storm and the and the impact and that it had economically and physically and uh, emotionally. Then then I think we can handle just about anything. Yep, <clears throat> that's the uh, the resilience of the of the American farmer and rancher is is quite uh, quite impressive. So. Well, Terry, I, th- I think we've covered it here. Um, any last things you want to say before we shut it down? No, Casey, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I uh, hope uh, there's some value, in at least something that I presented. Oh, yeah, there's there's plenty of value there. So, Terry, if they want to find you on, on the Internet, where would they find uh, Levinka equipment? Uh, com. So uh, there's an H in the beginning of Levinka, H-L-A-V-I-E. N-K-A, Levinka.com. Little beans, all right. Well, Terry, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks, Casey and Terry. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this podcast, we're also tapping into Casey's expertise across all of our informational channels, including an Ask the Expert feature on our website, where you can ask him your questions directly. Check it out at farm-equipment.com backslash expert. Thanks once again to Iron Solutions for sponsoring this series. Iron Solutions provides dealers like you an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. The Iron Search and Iron Guide suite of solutions is all about managing each dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your used equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. We hope you'll tune in with us for our next episode when Casey talks with Sean Skaggs of Livingston Machinery. For Casey and Terry, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.